0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 21 this morning. Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And He said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then He said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet, And early in the morning, all the people came into the temple to hear Him. May God bless the reading of His inerrant and inspired Word. Jesus' words here, His teaching to His disciples, draw us up into the larger issues of the end of all things, of the return of Christ and His second coming, the destruction of the world through the final judgment, and even its recreating of all things with a new heaven and a new earth. Now, for many Christians, this idea of eschatology, this idea of the theology of the very end is difficult in part because we hear so many different teachers say so many different things, uh, and it makes it a little bit tricky for us to make clear sense of what the Bible is teaching. This passage in particular can be hard because Jesus brings together two related events, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the very end destruction, the judgment that's gonna come on the world in his return. And he connects those things by saying one represents the other, and what is characteristic of both events will be true for the entire time between His first coming and His second coming. And so in talking about these things, you say, well, why would He put those things together? Well, He tells them about these things together because in the disciples' mind, the only way the temple would be destroyed is when the end of time itself was come. Now, we're going to unpack the details of this, but perhaps to to help you get a a big picture idea of how these things are related, let me just walk through an outline of the passage before us. In verses 6 through 7, Jesus says the temple will be destroyed and the disciples ask when and what sign. But Jesus doesn't answer directly. Instead, in verses 8 through 9, He warns about being led astray by false false signs of the end. Then in verses 10 through 19, Jesus explains what to expect before the end comes and how they should live in light of it. Then in contrast to that final day, he says in verses 20 through 24, that when they see similar signs in Jerusalem specifically, they'll know that the temple's about to be destroyed and they should flee. They should run. They should escape the carnage of that day. In verses 25 through 28, Jesus returns to speaking about the end and the true signs of his coming. Finally, in verses 29 through 33, Jesus assures his disciples that they will indeed know when his return is close, and he gives them a final exhortation to not grow tired, but to persevere in watchfulness. In verses 24, uh, excuse me, verses 34 through 36. Now, when we come to a passage like this that might seem a little complicated, it might seem a little obscure, it might seem a little far off, there is a temptation to reduce our thinking to mere timelines and predictions and newspaper headlines. But I want to remind you that no part of God's Word is ever meant to be read in a way that divorces it from how we live in the present. So even when we think about the creation of the world or the recreation of the world and the judgment that is to come, we're never to simply kind of sit back and see those things as objective reality somehow without also contemplating how is that meant to change how I think and live today. And so that's what we want to see this morning. That's what's ahead of us as we think through Christ's intent for his disciples then to say, look, this is how you ought to live in light of these things. And so also that same aim for us today, how we ought to live in light of what Christ teaches here about the end. In order to do that, we first need to understand Christ's predictions. We need to understand Christ's predictions. Luke sets the scene for us as we transition from the teaching that has gone on before to what he is going to tell us today by explaining that at this time, uh, Jesus w- w- was kind of done interacting with the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and now they're walking around this temple complex. And some were speaking of the temple, I think it them being some of his disciples, about how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And here we need to remind ourselves about the temple itself. It was rebuilt by Herod finally uh, about 50 years before this. Uh, Frankly, for us, it's pretty hard to imagine the magnificence that these people were looking at. Uh, It would have been just captivating. The, the other day, uh, Al Trimble and I were talking, and one of the things we were talking about was his uh, recent cruise and the, the fact that he was able to see Mayan ruins. They reminded me a lot about the Inca ruins that were scattered around. And for, for me and for him, those are impressive sights. Those are things to, to behold. But they're also ruins. Uh, we are not seeing those structures in the height, the zenith of uh, that uh, culture's empire in all their glory. Think about how much more I think about those ruins. Think about standing at Machu Picchu and seeing that this, this place laid out. What must that have looked like with Incas running around and living there all the time? Well, even more so. Uh, the poultry remains of the temple that exists in Jerusalem uh, do not come close to giving us even the hint of the grandeur that these disciples, even Jesus himself, would have seen there at the time. Uh, that we, we know from history that large marble foundation stones, 40 foot long, 12 feet high by 12 feet deep, weighing over 100 tons each were at the bottom of this edifice. You think about how in the world do you move something like that today, let alone back then? But the ancient historian Josephus goes further and actually captures something more of the the glory of its appearance. He says, the, the whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly. dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed the sun's rays themselves. Now, on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such pure white that to strangers who had never previously seen them, from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. It would have been uh, an amazing thing to behold when you think about the size, the scope, the beauty of it. More often, history tells that though, uh, Herod finished that project, the temple itself was never really done in some ways because wealthy patrons, wealthy Jews would often donate uh, gold or precious jewels or or some kind of elaborate decoration that would be added into the outside and the inside of the temple complex. So every time you went there, there would be something different. And it's at this point that these individuals, I think, are not only admiring the, the, the amazing grandeur of this thing, but even the new decorations that have been put up there. You understand, this was the pride of the Jews. This was the pride of Israel. Not just now, but throughout their history. This was the the center of life and culture. And Jesus says, yeah, you see all these stones? There's going to come a day when not one of them is going to be left standing on top of the other. You can imagine the absolute shock of the disciples in hearing that. And so here we need to understand that part of Christ's predictions, there was an unexpected destruction that was to come. An unexpected destruction destruction. Again, the disciples would have only understood the destruction of the temple at that time coming in the context of an all-out war against the Messiah from the Gentile nations. And so they say, teacher, when will these things be? When is the end going to come? How are we going to know about it? What will the sign be when these things are about to take place? They think he's talking about the end of the world. They're like, well, what is that going to happen? How are we going to know about it? And what Jesus wants his disciples to understand that the destruction of the temple is not going to be the end. There's going to be a lot more that happens after that, as cataclysmic as it is. And yet it's still important. It's still significant. It is a small picture of what the end will be like. This event characterizes all of the time between Jesus' first and second comings, but it specifically highlights and points forward to what is going to take place at the end. Nevertheless, he says in verse 9, do not be terrified when it happens for these things must take place first, but the end will not be at once. In other words, when, when you see all of this calamity and destruction, you're going, be, you're going to be tempted to be scared and think this is it. This is the end. But he says, no, no, no. You don't understand. This happens first, but the end's not next. The end is yet to come. So you can imagine why Jesus would have to warn them based on the description of verses 20 through 24. It's utterly devastating. And we know from history, millions of Jews were slaughtered by the Roman armies, many more enslaved. The famine in the days that followed reduced some mothers to cannibalism as they ate their own children to survive. Such was the devastation left by General Titus when in AD 70, he invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple just as Jesus predicted. But Jesus says, look, that's not the end. That's not how it's going to end. He says, this was to be a judgment on this people because they had rejected God. And therefore, it echoes the final judgment that is to come, not just on the Jewish people, but on all of the world who would reject God. And that way, this points to the final judgment. Judgment. And it points to the reality that both in this day and in every day until Jesus' return, we will also see a time marked by spiritual deception. By spiritual deception. Jesus says, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, but do not go after them. This is one of the common strategies of Satan, to dupe people into following a false messiah. That was true in Jesus' day when lots of people, uh, particularly uh, militant uh, rebels, claimed to be the Messiah and tried to raise armies to fight the Romans. He said many would claim to be the Christ, but it's not just in Jesus' day. I and mean, we can point all through history individuals who claim to be not just the first coming of the Messiah, but now that Jesus had came, now that He had won atonement on the cross and He raised back to the Father and promised He would return to be that second coming of Christ. In fact, just in the last 60 years, think about names like Sung Sun Young Moon and David Koresh and Jim Jones, all cult leaders who claimed to be the Messiah returned to the earth. Jesus said it would happen just a few decades after he left, and it continues on even till the present day. The third thing that we see of these times marked by not only the the destruction of the temple in the end, but all of this interadvental age is by a theme of painful tribulation. Painful tribulation. In verse 10, Jesus says that before He returns, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay up their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My namesake. Jesus makes it clear that anyone who will follow Him as a disciple Will not have an easy life. If you became a Christian because someone promised you all your problems would go away, everything would be great, that when tribulation comes, God will eject his people from this world, you were sold a lie. That is not what Jesus says here. Just the opposite. All from the time that he leaves his first apostles all the way up to the day of his return, his people will experience tribulation and persecution. Jesus is the Savior who will forgive you and cleanse you of all your sin. He will bring joy and delight to your soul. But He is also the King who is despised and rejected by this world. Therefore, all of His followers will likewise be ultimately despised and rejected. And in this. Age of last days, not just like the last days right before Jesus comes. The New Testament says that that from the moment Jesus ascended, he inaugurated the last days. You think about how Paul uses that term in his letters. He says, In these last days. It's the same phrase, the the same words that he used to talk about the return of Jesus. And so from the day that Jesus' foot left Galilee and went back up to heaven to the day that his foot comes back on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, we're in the last days. And all this time will be marked by pain and suffering for his people. In fact, part of what makes it so painful, he says, is that even those that we love and care for will betray us. In verses 16 and 17, he says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Even our family and friends will hate us and betray us. It's a sobering thought. And we'll talk about how we ought to respond to that in just a few minutes. But pulling back from the immediate text a little bit, what I want us to understand is that what we see here again is not anything um, that we shouldn't already know about as God's people. Uh, just a few years after Jesus first preached these words, first in First Peter 5, the apostle gives us kind of a summary of all these things, of what we should expect in the Christian life. And he describes Satan as our great enemy, like a lion on the Serengeti looking for its next dinner. So looking for God's people to feast on. Because he hates Christ, he hates those who call themselves by the name of Christ. And the entirety of this age is characterized by our enemy warring against us, against the church and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. But the irony is, he's already lost that war. He's already lost that war. He may rage and threaten and kill, but the war is already won. This is why Jesus predicts not just the difficulties that lie ahead, but he also predicts and reminds us of the reality of our glorious redemption. This is the fourth thing that we see in his predictions, our glorious redemption. Now, I've used before the illustration of World War II in describing these realities, and I'll do it again this morning in part because it's such a great illustration and because I couldn't think of anything else. Some of you may not have heard it before or may not be World War II buffs, and so it may be fresh to you, but historians almost universally agree that when the Allies invaded France and the D-Day invasion, World War II was essentially done. If we were successful on that day, there wasn't any way the Axis powers could actually come back from defeat. It was all over from them. But that didn't stop them from trying. That didn't stop them from trying to fight back. And in fact, what became known as the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans tried to break through the Allied lines in a surprise blitzkrieg attack. And to some degree, they almost succeeded. In fact, our line that should have been a, a normal kind of a sloping line, if you were to look from a bird's eye view, began to bulge in the middle. That's the, the name as the, as the Axis powers pounded and pounded and pounded. And virtually all of the men that were in the center of that line died and gave up their lives, holding the line until reinforcements could come and shore it up and defeat Hitler in that day. The war had been won on D Day, but the Battle of the Bulge was the single bloodiest battle that the U.S. Army has ever fought in a single engagement. Over 100,000 casualties in one battle. Now we compare that to what Jesus is saying here. The reality is on the cross, we've had our D Day. We've not stormed the beaches of Satan's strongholds, but Jesus has stood in our place. He has been our David who runs out for the enemies. uh, uh, He runs out for the the, the army of Israel to defeat Goliath single-handedly. He has stood in our place. He has borne the wrath of God and therefore defeated Satan, sin, and death itself for us. But that doesn't stop Satan from raging. That doesn't stop him from slaughtering our brothers and sisters in North Africa. He is still fighting, but nothing can prevent our salvation. Nothing can prevent their salvation. Jesus says in verse 25, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in the cloud with power and great glory now when these things begin to take place straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near it's it's a done deal the decisive act of our salvation is not something in the future but something past it lies in the triumph of Christ's death and resurrection, so that even in the midst of tribulation and pain, we know that He is coming. We know that our glorious redemption is at hand. Now, through all these predictions of what is to come, we see what we are to expect in the days in which we live. We are fortunate in that, to be honest, so much of this stands at a distance from us today because of the the. The culture in which we live, the country that that we've been blessed to be born in. But for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is daily life. This is is the, the edge upon which they daily live. Nevertheless, we should not expect that even in this country, we will escape such things forever. Just as the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple served as a small taste of what is to come, we see the kind of difficulty the church will always face until Jesus returns. So the question is, once again, what do we do with that? How does that affect how we live now? How we think and what we do in light of these things. If we understand Christ's predictions, then secondly, we should respond as Christ's people. We should respond as Christ's people. And the way we begin to respond to the realities of this world until the second coming is that we rest in Christ's comfort. We rest in Christ's comfort. How do we do this? Well, we think about what Jesus says here. It begins by resting in His permanent word. His permanent word. Beginning in verse 29, Jesus tells His disciples this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. The point of the parable is to tell the disciples that the end will be evident by the signs that they see just as oncoming summer is evident uh, through what they see in the trees, the new leaves sprouting out. And now his disciples will know fully and should even now know that they can trust what Jesus says. They can take comfort in the reality that he is right because his word is permanent. Heaven and earth creation itself will one day pass away, but not the words of Christ. The word of God remains forever. Now, does that sound familiar? Because God says something very similar in Isaiah 40, that the flowers may fade, the grass may die, but His word stands forever. So think about even now what Jesus is claiming for Himself. He is not just the Messiah. He's not just the Savior. He's God in the flesh. He is God, the everlasting Son. And so we can trust and take comfort. We can rest in the ongoing authority and assurance of His Word. Think about what He promises His people in that everlasting Word. To those who believe Him, He promises endless comfort and protection in the midst of all the things in this world. Those promises likewise will stand forever. So on your darkest day, you do not need to worry that somehow God has forgotten you, that somehow the promise is not real. No, Christ assures us, take comfort, rest in this fact. My word is forever. Every promise that I've made will come true. At one time, the atheistic philosopher Voltaire was famous for saying that he thought Christianity was on the wane. Its days were numbered. Some even said that he predicted a time when the Bible would not even be printed anymore. But about 50 years after his death, quite ironically, the Reverend Ackworth wrote in the Missionary Register of traveling to Geneva, where he met with the committee of the Evangelical Society. And after spending some time with them, they said, would you like to see the home of the great heretic and defender of atheism, Voltaire? Would you like to see the place where, the very room where he wrote his plays and had them acted out with his friends? And Ackworth says, being very British, I had a morbid fascination to go and see this room of the enemy of the faith. And he goes to get his hat and the man says, oh, you don't need that. Come with me. And they walk across the hall to the next room. And he said, I took great delight. In fact, he said, I took much gratification that this room of Voltaire now served as a repository for Bibles and religious tracts. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus offers comfort in the permanence of his word, but he also offers comfort of a protected future, of a protected future. Right after he says that we will be persecuted for his namesake and even delivered up by our families, Jesus says, yet not a hair of your head will perish. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter would say as he opened his first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he blessed, Peter? He is blessed because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Despite difficulty, persecution, rejection, maybe even martyrdom, Jesus says He will keep His people till the very end. There is no threat that can separate us from Christ. The souls of His people will be saved. Even more than that, even the very last hairs on our dying heads will be preserved and raised up after the image of our elder brother Christ in His glorious resurrection. So as we think about how to begin to respond to all of the things that Jesus tells us in this passage about the end, it begins with resting in the comforts that He offers, the assurances that He gives to His people. But more than that, more than that, it doesn't just stop at comforts. It goes on. And now we must also obey Christ's commands. We rest in His comforts, but we also obey His commands. So what does Jesus command? What does He tell us to do in these verses? First, He says that we ought to be wise. We ought to be wise. Remember that Jesus said His disciples need to make sure they are not led astray by false messiahs. Now, of course, we gave some examples about how this could be real people, right? Uh, real people, flesh and blood people, who say uh, I'm the I'm Jesus returned back to life. In fact, Sung Moon specifically said he came back because uh, Jesus had failed in this life and by not taking a wife. So, if you know anything about him, you know how he proceeded to make up for that lack. But the reality is, let's be honest: most Christians are not in threat of following a cult leader. Some are. Some don't know much about the Christian faith. Some are weak. They don't really read their Bibles. They've not been in a good church and they might be led astray. Others that are not even professing Christians might be led astray. But the the more specific threat to those that would claim the name of Christ is not to be drawn to a specific person, but rather to be drawn in by false teaching that leads them to believe things about Jesus that are simply not true. So rather than following a mere man, they are tempted to follow, follow a lesser Christ. Therefore, we need to have discernment. We need to be wise about this. lest we be a lot astray. And toward that end, let me just say two practical things that you can do in order to be wise. First of all, turn off religious television. Uh, that's not even a joke. I mean, there are, some good, there are some good people on there, but they're outnumbered by like 10 to 1 by false teachers and, and flat out kooks. And so I would just say, if you're looking for some kind of supplementary teaching, uh, there's lots of good podcasts uh, that are free of charge. You can listen to it anytime. I would say go for those things instead. Uh, it's just not worth uh, having the religious stations on. Second, more positively, read your Bible. I mean, if you want to know who Jesus is, read what he said to his disciples. Read about the things that he did. Read about how the apostles preached his life and his ministry and how they explained who he was. Then as you read the Old Testament, read it in light of the saving work of Christ. The First thing we ought to do, according to Christ's command, is to be wise. Secondly, we need to bear witness for him. We need to bear witness. I love what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, there's going to be war. There's going to be persecution. You're going to be handed over to hostile authorities. And we think, I do not want that. I am afraid and I'm going to go hide. I'm going to run for the hills or get in a bunker. But then what does he say in the very next verse? At that time, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I just think that is so counter to how we normally think and live. But think specifically about Jesus' disciples here. I mean, these guys especially are kind of podunks, right? Right? They have no formal religious training. They're not respected by the leaders of Israel. They have no cultural standing. Rome doesn't care a whit about them. Now imagine those type of people being arrested and standing before Jewish authorities, standing before Roman authorities, and having to give an account of Christ. And what does he say? He says, now is your time to bear witness when these things take place. More than that, he says, remember, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to help you. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, and everything that you've learned about me, everything that you believed about me, is just setting up there, uh, stewing in your mind, in your heart, and when you are taken captive for those things and put on trial, have no fear. This is going to be your time to bear witness, and I'll actually give you the words to say. I will put those words in your mouth. And the most beautiful thing is that in, in the gospel of Luke part two called Acts, we see Jesus doing this very thing. Peter and John hauled before the Jewish authorities in Israel, say, don't preach Jesus. They say, sorry, you have to kill us first. Uh, we have to obey God rather than man. We're going to preach. And they literally are pulling their hair out frustrated. Stephen confronts the most learned religious leaders in Israel and outpreaches them all. I mean, you think about this. Guys that have spent their whole life, these are like the PhDs of seminary graduates in the the day. And yet Stephen, this mere deacon, as it were, begins preaching this sermon that just boggles their mind. And Luke says, none could refute him. And it leads to his martyrdom. Paul likewise goes from synagogue to synagogue, from, from Gentile town to Gentile town, Roman colony to Roman colony, and eventually gets arrested for disturbing the peace. And yet he keeps talking, he keeps bearing witness, he keeps preaching the gospel of a man who died and was raised back to life because he was God in the flesh. He is Lord, not Caesar. A message that he even preaches in Caesar's household. Why? Because Jesus is with him, giving him the words to say that he might bear witness. Now I want us to think about that because whenever someone uses what is almost Christian profanity sometimes, the E word of evangelize or evangelism, we have a freak out. Even from the, the pulpit, I mention sharing faith, witnessing evangelism. And you know what I see? Diverted eyes. Eye contact is lost. Some people even almost begin pulling out plastic bags like they're going to hyperventilate. Others begin you know, flipping through their Bible, looking at other things. Heaven forbid we should have to bear witness about Jesus. Here are the apostles that are willing to give their life. He tells us friends and family are going to hate us. And we don't want to cross the pain line. We're not ready for that. We're not prepared for that. We think, oh, but it, can't, it won't happen to us. If I just love them long enough, I'm just nice to them long enough, eventually they'll, they'll be okay with it. Reality check. Not going to happen every time. If Jesus' words are true, if they are lasting, if they are eternal, you're going to lose friends over the gospel. You might get put in jail over the gospel. That's probably not going to happen to anyone in this room. But you might lose family over the gospel. You, you might have to be willing to say, I love this person, but I understand that they do not love Christ and they're going to hate me because I put Christ before them. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to just enjoy this relationship that's built on nothing other than the fact that we have similar chromosomes and DNA and blood running through our veins. Jesus says that even in the face of the strongest opposition, this is not our time to be quiet. This is our time to bear witness. This is our time to preach Christ because he's worth it. He's worth losing friends. He's worth losing family. He's worth spending time in prison. He's worth dying. If you doubt that, Then we can do one of two things. We can either get on a plane and go to some other countries, or we can just get on a blog and read their testimony. But there are hundreds of thousands of Christians today who have cut their losses in incredible ways. Muslims who have texted everyone in their phone directory at once, some 300 people to say, just so you know from now on, I am no longer Muslim, I am a Christian. Why do they do that? Why do they put their lives in it? Because Jesus is worth it. And they know that as those that have put their faith in Him, they are called to bear witness to Him. last thing that Christ calls us to do is to keep watch. Is to keep watch. I recently read that from the late 1940s until the early 1990s, the Strategic Air Command flew constant flights around the borders of this country. The goal was to deter a Russian attack with nuclear devices. When The pilots were on duty. They had to remain within 100 yards of their aircraft at all moments in order to be ready to go airborne. Various rotating flight crews were awake at all times to ensure a constant state of readiness for any military alert. I find that interesting because that is the kind of constant readiness that Jesus, I think, is calling us to here. The kind of watchfulness that should mark us out as his disciples who are waiting for his return. Jesus says that his return will be delayed. He says, you're going to see these terrible things happening in Jerusalem. The temple's going to go away. But guess what? It's not time for me to come back yet. It's going to be a while. And I think the greatest temptation for us, the biggest difficulty... It's fighting against the, ten, the tendency to grow careless and indifferent. Jesus returned? Sure, I believe that. When's it going to happen? I don't know. doesn't matter. Because I'm living for the here and the now and for myself. That's the temptation. To, to, to have orthodox beliefs that are completely divorced from the priorities of our life. And so we are tempted to grow comfortable in this world rather than expectant for Jesus' return. This is why he says in verses 34 and 35, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. He says, in order to stay awake at all times, we ought to be praying that we may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That escape is not escape as if somehow we're not going to get caught up in the destruction, but rather the escape of dissipation, the escape of drunkenness, the escape of carelessness in the Christian life. Pray for grace to stand firm, to stay steady, and to be watchful. What Jesus has given us here is an incredibly sobering description of what is to come and what is even now here. And he's not given us this description that that we might be discouraged, discouraged from serving him, but rather to warn us against the threats to our spiritual life. More than that, I think he has given us this description and instructions to heighten our desire for his return. One day he says the entire world will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And yet even now, that thought, that reality should cause us to straighten up, to raise our heads and remember that our redemption is drawing near. It's my prayer that we would have God's grace to be found faithful as we wait for the return of our Lord. Father, in light of that, we do ask that you would help us to be watchful Lord, that we would not grow slack or indifferent to you or the things of you, to not be so enamored of the things of this world, but to always be mindful of your return. That, Father, we would give priority to bearing witness about you, even in the most uncomfortable and awkward situations, Father. What is it going to matter in eternity if the person in a restaurant thinks that we're crazy? And yet, Father, how much of a difference is it going to make if we remain tight-lipped and allow friends and family to perish for all eternity, never having heard the gospel from us? Father, help us to be consistent in bearing witness. And Father, make us to be wise from the fullness of your word. God, give us discernment about false teachers and the threat that they pose to our soul. God, in all these things, may we take comfort in Christ's assurance that His Word will stand forever, that our salvation is secure forever in Him. Father, we ask these things in His name and for His sake. Amen.